please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is on shame with Lee Kaufman, Luke Carmen, Stephanie Wood, Jess Hill and Gallivanting. Good afternoon and welcome to the Wollongong Writers Festival to this session called On Shame. My name is Lee Kaufman, and I'm absolutely delighted to be chairing this session, both because the topic really speaks to me, but also I have such amazing writers, and we will hear about them soon. But I just want to start by acknowledging that I'm paying my respects today to the Vadi Vadi people of the Dharawal Nation for the whole the stories, traditions, culture, and hopes of Aboriginal Australia. This is, was, and always will be Aboriginal land. We meet today to share our stories, and in doing so, I honor Aboriginal leaders of the past, present, and future, and extend acknowledgement and respect to old First Nation peoples present. Today, of course, we are going to be talking about shame, but also about the relationship of shame to culture, gender, and writing. Shame is one of the most pervasive and tough human feelings, and it has many faces. Where does shame come from? Is it always rooted in the outside world, or can it also be an internal, and occasionally even adaptive mechanism? How can shape shape and reshape our character and behavior, and can we extricate ourselves from its abyss? We'll discuss all these questions, and we'll also explore the possibility that for writers, shame may sometimes be a useful tool, possibly even a source of inspiration. The Norwegian author Karl of Knosgaard for example, suggests that concealing what is shameful to you will never lead to anything of value. This is, this is Tim, him talking. <laughs> this is something I discovered when I was writing my first novel when the parts that I was ashamed like a dog to have written were the same parts that my editor always pointed out saying, this, this is really good. <laughs> <laughs> In a way, that was, that was my shame omitter, the belief that the feeling of shame or guilt signified relevance. So we'll consider Knosgaard's proposition of shameometer, along with everything else, these four people who really do amazing work in writing, but also in, I would say, partly in activism or just in uh, promoting the intellectual debate in Australia. And why did I say just? I don't know. <laughs> so their works, albeit different in style and content, all explore potentially shameful, provoking theme, themes. So I'm going to introduce them to you. Uh, to my far left is sitting Stephanie Wood. Stephanie Wood is an award-winning journalist, a former editor of the Age Good Food and a former Good Weekend magazine writer. She is known for her compelling, deeply human stories, ranging from Melbourne's thunderstorm asthma epidemic to the opioid epidemic. Her debut book, Fake, a startling true story of love in a world of liars, cheats, narcissists, fantasists, and phonies, 
combines her own story of becoming romantically involved with a deceitful man with fascinating and thorough research into the phenomenon of con artists who stalk the dating world. And to my close, left is sitting Jess Hill. And Jess is a multi-award-winning investigative journalist who has been writing about domestic violence since 2014. Prior to this, she was a producer for ABC Radio, a Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail, and an investigative journalist for Background Briefing. See What You Made Me Do, which we'll discuss today, is her first book. There, Jess explores domestic abuse, a phenomenon which is, of course, surrounded by many layers of shame, whether it is the shame that victims can experience, or perpetrators, or even communities surrounding those families. Gala Vanting is just next to me. Gala is a writer, an award-winning erotic film producer, sex worker, educator, pleasure activist, and I particularly love this, erotic imaginist. <laughs> she uh, draws from a diverse background in the sexuality field and brings a queer feminist approach to her work. Central to her creative practice is the core value of intimacy and the democratization of sexy. In her art, she aims to create compassionate and justice-driven dialogue about sexuality, health, media, technology, and culture. Her interest in shame comes from her experience as a sex worker and sex educator. Luke Carman is an author based in Western Sydney. His first book, An Elegant Young Man, was awarded the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award and shortlisted for the ALS Gold Medal. In 2014, he was named the Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist. Today, we'll be discussing his second book, Intimate Antipathies. In this thought-provoking essay collection, Luke casts a questioning eye on the Australian literary culture and generously exposes some of his deeply personal stories, such as his relationship with his son or his experience of mental illness. So, as you can see now that I've read the bias, why I'm so nervous today to be chairing this session, more than usual, actually. Really high-caliber uh, people here. So, and I want to start by um, talking about the definitions of shame, how we understand it. So in Luke's essay called uh, The Whistleblower's Lament, he writes, shame teaches us what we value, whether we know it or not. So I wonder, Luke, if you would like to explain us what you meant by this. And this after, after this, we will hear from everybody else what they sort of understand by this idea of shame. Okay, uh, great. Thanks, Lee. Um, yeah, those words are mine. They're from the, the essay collection. But I point out in it that uh, not my ideas. Uh, that's actually taken more or less verbatim from an important Australian academic named Elspeth Proben who wrote an amazing book called Blush in the 90s, which is where she was attempting to reconceptualize shame as something that's productive uh, and generative. And she was doing that in the context of, at the time, the Howard government was attempting to make uh, a rhetorical, uh, uh, to set up a rhetorical situation where uh, people had to choose between being either sort of flag-waving uh, patriots with Southern Cross tattoos or... Uh, black armband historians who were, you know, the, the phrase was mired in guilt. And uh, what else Proben was attempting to do there was to say, okay, this guilt discussion is getting us nowhere. Instead, why don't we reframe it and look at shame instead? Because uh, as she, she talks about in the book Blush, 
For example, when we blush, when we're ashamed and we blush, we make ourselves involuntarily visible at the moment we most want to hide ourselves. Uh, and it shows to other people what our values are and it involuntarily demonstrates the things that we care about because you can't really be ashamed, you can't blush about something uh, that you're not interested in or that you don't value. And so that was where she was coming from. And she, the argument she was making is that through understanding what makes us ashamed, we can understand what we, deep down, no matter what we tell ourselves, what we value. And so that's, I read that book in the 90s and that's where I stole that uh, phrase from. <laughs> But you gave it your own interpretation very well. <laughs> in my own words. <laughs> Jesse, you said shame a lot in your book and you really engage with this concept. What does shame mean to you? Yeah, so I think that one of the most important things in first researching shame and understanding it was to separate shame out from guilt. And, you know, Luke was sort of just alluding to that before that, you know, guilt is something that we can have forgiven. Um, if someone forgives us for something that we've done that we feel guilty about, we can almost immediately feel absolved. Um, whereas shame, you don't get absolved by someone else. Um, I, don't, I write in the book, you know, it sort of persists like a chemical burn and it's the sort of thing that takes a, it can take a lifetime to work through to get to the bottom of um, and, you know, hours of expensive therapy. Um, and But was what Luke was saying, that thing about shame being actually a productive emotion, shame is something that we're actually born with, so it's what we call one of the nine affects and other affects are like joy, anger, the things that come with us into the world. It's not something we learn. And part of the reason that we have shame from an evolutionary perspective is it was as, you know, if you have pain, it can prevent you sort of from further damaging your tissue. It's like pain says, don't keep like cutting into your arm, you'll cut it off or, <laughs> um, or whatever it is, you know. Shame is the way of saying, what you're doing is not socially acceptable and if you're in a social group, you may be excluded from that social group and, you know, back in the day, um, that may mean death, you know, um, not so much now but we certainly see, say, you know, um, like in the institutional, uh, the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sex Abuse, one of the big things that comes up is like it takes children 20, 30 years maybe to tell about what happened to them and part of that is that shame, that fear that you're going to be excluded and seen as in inherently unworthy to be part of the community, that you never can express that shame, it is too great and you will be exiled. Um, so I think that you know, in the, the work that I've done, um, also shame and guilt play very different roles too in terms of the perpetrator. And there was some research done into convicted criminals in Germany and the US and it looked at guilt actually being a motivating factor for wanting to reform um, and that guilt is actually an awareness that someone has done something wrong, whereas shame for those same convicted criminals was actually more likely to, to lead to further crimes because there's a feeling that one is hard done by, one is being um, biased against by society and victimised because shame often doesn't... Because we're so, we're so eager to suppress shame and where it comes from, we don't admit to it in ourselves. And so these feelings that shame produces, we may blame on other people. Um, and that's where these victimhood complexes we see, especially in perpetrators of domestic abuse, um, I think have, have some of their origins. Um, but, yeah, that difference between shame and guilt is really important to understand that shame is 
in feeling of inherent unworthiness or badness. Stephanie, in your book, shame is also something that you engage a lot with in different ways. And your book, as much as personal it is, it's also a very research-based book. What is your take on shame? Um, it's interesting from my book's perspective that shame is there in two places, in two parts of the, the, the relationship between me and my ex-partner, boyfriend. Um, I believe that shame motivated his behaviour in a great way, in a, in a very large way. But, and it was there for him from the very beginning of the relationship. In my view, I can't, I can only mostly guess what's in his, his head. But it came for me towards the end of the relationship when I started to realise that um, I'd been fooled, I'd been tricked by this guy. Um, and nothing he said, or very, very little of what he said about himself was true. And so I, th I think of shame as very much a physical thing. To me, it feels like a load and a weight. It feels like a, 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 something in the pit of my stomach. It's very visceral and a cloud across my brain. Um, but what you talked about wanting to be part of the tribe, I think, is, um, is really important when you think about shame because there are certain acceptable parts of life. You know, we, we like to think that we're successful. We like to think that we're we're attractive and, and we achieve, we're, we're achieving things in line with what the rest of society is. And I think shame makes you think that you are not, you are lesser than, you, you, um, you are failing what, what equals success. You are not measuring up to what success equals in our society. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very heavy feeling. And I, I guess, yeah, in a, it, to me it feels like some, it's inequality in a sense, you're not equal with the rest of the world because you, for whatever reason, in my case, poor judgment, his cleverness, all sorts of reasons, um, I, I was, I fell victim to this. Gala, you of course work in a field that has been bound with shame from the very sort of dawn of history as a sexuality. What is your take? How do you understand this concept? I mean, yeah, shame, shame has been, I guess, um, I, I, I get paid to deal with it on a, on a really intimate level. Um, I, I think there's, uh, there's a relationship here for me between stigma and shame, especially when we're talking about sexuality um, and, and the, you know, I don't, I don't, I, don't I, I can't say which came first, um, but I think there's, uh, in, in, our, in our desires, in the way that we enact them or, the, or whether we choose to enact them, um, in what is visible and not so visible around our sexual selves and the way that we perform them, um, you know, the, and, and also, I guess, you know, from my experience living as a sex worker, that's a, that's a highly stigmatized uh, identity to be living in and, and, and the, you know, we call it, uh, in, in sex work world, we call it internalized whorephobia. You know, it's a, it's a shame that you, um, that you, no matter how hard you try, you can never deconstruct because the stigma that's telling you you should feel shame is the water you're swimming in. Um, and so, you know, we, we swallow a lot of messages that create that sense of shame in ways that we could never uh, pinpoint. Um, and, and as we're talking, I'm thinking of actually about my stepkids uh, and the way that, that I, just watching children experience shame 
uh, and the things that they experience shame about, right? Like, um, you know, my, like one of my stepchildren is perfectly fine to run around nude, um, but really not okay um, feeling sad. She feels shame around feeling sad, you know, and, and so I, it's like, where do, we, where do we pick up these tiny, you know, these little micro signals that we need to feel this shame around whatever it is? I want to talk now about how shame can shape our behavior. And I want to sort of um, go back just to this point you raised before about um, shame actually can be behind a lot of perpetration of um, crimes as opposed to sort of stopping them. And you use this really powerful concept in your book, Humiliated Fury, as to explain a lot of the motivation behind the domestic abuse. So could you maybe talk about this a bit? Yeah, so Humiliated Fury was a term that was coined by the psychoanalyst Helen Block-Lewis in the 70s. She was the first to actually clinically analyse shame and guilt as two separate kind of properties and she was pioneering in the fact that she was a woman and she was a psychoanalyst and it was 1971 um, but she was also um, she really was one of the first people to call it out from that psychoanalyst point of view where she and the research that she did was like it, even in the therapy room shame is so shameful that therapists won't even bring it up like so instead they would look at people who were actually just deeply shamed and they will pathologize them as bipolar or borderline personality disorder they come up with some sort of like biological or pathological illness to describe what was actually a deeply shame-ridden person um, and couldn't actually just deal with that in the room and what she meant around the term of humiliated fury is that some people, and especially men, um, that they feel like so disturbed by that feeling of shame, which is something that disturbs all of us, but so so wanting to eject it immediately rather than maybe do the things that some other people do, which is withdraw and just feel it and try to work through it or self-harm or, you know, a whole bunch of other responses. When abusive people would feel that shame, they would try to deflect it by turning it around into anger and they would resort to anger in order to re replace shame with a feeling of pride and power. And so to give you a sense of what that might look like in a relationship, so and I'm talking about not necessarily people who use control as a as a method throughout their relationships but maybe people who are just a bit more reactive in relationships which can then spiral into control but think about so there's a there's an argument um and the woman said to the guy you didn't call when you said you should call now the guy like immediately in the, in the back of his head it's like geez I was a bit of a shit for not calling when I said I would call probably feels pretty bad about that but in order to in that moment feels humiliated, right? Feels like I did the wrong thing. That feeling is can't be accommodated. So it needs to be expelled. So turn into anger. What do you mean I didn't call? I didn't call because, you know, why, why are you so needy? Like you don't need me to call all the time or it could turn into a spite. You're not worth calling, you know. I'm going to make you feel what I've just felt. I'm going to project my humiliation onto you and I'm going to make you feel shamed. Um, and what you see so often is not only, I think, humiliated fury driving um, a lot of abuse, but actually that projection of the humiliated fury onto the victim so, such that actually at the core of a lot of domestic abuse and the, the worst part of it is not necessarily the physical violence or the sexual violence, but at the core of it is humiliation and degradation. 
and you know we don't really think we don't put a lot of stock in humiliation as as an assault on us but the Talmud has an amazing quote and that is that humiliation is worse than physical pain and if you think about the sorts of effort that we go to to avoid humiliation on a daily basis or avoid other people feeling humiliated so um Alan Wade from Canada tells this sort of does a great analogy of this and he says you know think about okay your nana she knits you a jumper and one arm is like several hands longer than the other and but you don't want to embarrass your nana right so you just want to say nana it's a beautiful jumper I'll wear it every day um and, and that's a part of protecting her dignity in that moment um and not just coming out and saying what you think just like fuck off nana you knitted a horrific jumper um now imagine just for a moment if you were with someone say for example who was taking that ability to maintain that decency out of your hands imagine if you were standing there you get the jumper from nana and your partner goes it's fucking horrible even that so i'm not even talking about direct humiliation of you but the fact that you can't control anymore being able to protect other people imagine that happening to your kids and then imagine what it feels like to have that on you maybe every day in different and maybe more sort of covert ways where it feels like at no point can you actually protect your dignity and that that need for dignity is actually it's like the air that we breathe if we feel like our dignity has been taken away we can feel almost like we've been killed you know or that we are dying and that's I think you know part of what I've been trying to do and especially actually what I've learned since writing the book is really reframe the conversation about domestic abuse as to one about humiliation and indignity rather than focusing on physical violence or whatever which is horrific no question but is often at the service of humiliation and degradation and like Alan Wade says you know it's not that they will just sort of like you know that a, an abusive man will just like punch the woman He'll punch her and then tell her she deserves it because she's a slut. There's degradation woven into all of these assaults, and the degradation is often what takes longer to recover from because that feeling of shame is almost impossible to move without the absolution of the person who put it on you, which is almost never going to happen. That's horrifying stuff, Jess. And one of the things that I particularly loved about. Uh uh, Jess's wonderful book is that you, you're not using euphemisms, you're naming things as they are. And just like you did it now verbally in your book, you also make it really explicit what it actually feels like to live in this um, cycle of abuse. Um, now, Gala, I know that you have also interest in um, the relationship between shame and violence, and I'd be love to hear where this interest comes. Um, I mean, I think it comes primarily from my own experience with um, with violence, with domestic violence or gendered violence, whether that's my experience personally or my proximity to, to people experiencing that. Um, and, and I guess, you know, I, we're also existing at this moment where you can't not interface with the sort of dying cry of of patriarchy you know which is a which is a cry of shame that is being veiled as as a as as a you know a cry of anger or or i don't know um righteousness self-righteousness um and and you know i i only have to look for a moment at the men's rights activist kind of movement to to see that on almost a comical way like it's it's they're really just 
but it's the ship's going down. Like, let's go down in a dignified way. Um, <laughs> please. Uh, and, and I guess I also, um, you know, I, I'm, I feel very afraid of um, male shame because I know that that moment when, um, when you know, the, the moment that, that you um, establish a no as a person who is not in power or a person who's had harm perpetrated against them, that, that no uh, creates often a shame response. And that's the moment when you are most vulnerable, right? Like, you know, women who leave domestic violence relationships are often the most at risk when they actually take that step and, and leave. Um, and because that's that, that moment of being called out. And when you're someone who is not operating in a consent-based model, that no is impossible. That no sends you into such a spiral. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm really interested in that idea that, like, we as a, as a culture are saying no now more and more to patriarchal violence. And I'm scared for what is going to happen, you know, in, in, in the medium term around that. Thank you. Stephanie, in your book, you, it was really a revelation to me when you write about how romantic con men, shame is also often uh, their motivation, just sort of quite of in line with what Jess is talking in her book. So it would be really interesting to hear how does uh, the emotion of shame actually bring these people to deceive their romantic partners? Well, there was so much in Jess's book about shame that I, I read and I thought, my God, there's so many parallels there in, the, in, in my relationship with the man that I was with. And for anyone that doesn't know, um, I've called him Joe in my book, Fake, and Joe presented himself to me as a wealthy Harborside, Sydney Harborside living man who had two children, a country farm, was a former architect, dabbled in private equity, um, but now just liked to farm and do a bit of development on the side. And there were elements of truth in the story, but essentially it was a grandiose facade that he built up around himself. And as I started to dissect the relationship after it ended and try to understand what had motivate him, motivated him to be the person he was, to just so brazenly tell me these most extraordinary lies, some of which checked out, which gave me a sort of a false sense of security because, of course, I was Googling him and, of course, I was checking a few things out. Um, it, I, I came to look at... I did a search one night on the internet um, in my very early days of um, post-breakdown, breakup when I was really, really traumatised and I searched for boyfriend pathological liar and it opened up a whole world to me that I really didn't know existed. And we have to remember, this, this is late 2014 when this happened. So it's before the Dirty John story. It's before Who the Hell is Hamish. Um, we didn't know about Anna Delvey, for, for, if you don't know who she is. She's a, a, a Russian-born New York con woman who's, I think, now serving a lot of time in jail. Um, we didn't know about Theranos. We didn't, there are so many things we hadn't heard then. We didn't know about narcissistic behaviours. And what I discovered as I, as I Googled extensively was this huge field of pop psychology about narcissism and personality disorders and projection, the word that you used. It, 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 these people project. They, when they can't, as you said, accommodate the feelings that they have um, they turn it on you and it's you that, that they say you have that's it's your fault it's 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 a it's it's a bit of victim blaming but it's a, a bit of also placing the things that they know they are on you and say that you have those qualities but 
eventually I started to talk to real psychologists and rather than just listening to internet pop psychology. And one of the, the, one of the things that I discovered, in fact, coming down to Wollongong, I came down to meet a professor at um, Wollongong University. There's a personality disorders institute here. And in talking to Professor Bryn Grenier here, um, I came to understand a lot more about why people um, behave as they do with personality, personality disorders. And what it's really about is a vulnerable sense of self. Part of it's about a vulnerable sense of vulnerable relationships, difficult relationships with other people. But a vulnerable sense of self really is, is key to what formulates these sorts of behaviours, which in, include the, the grandiosity and the, and the, and the massive the, de the deceit. They really... I, I kind of picture my ex-boyfriend as this kind of hollow shell and the lies and the, the crazy stories and the country properties and sending us off. He wanted his daughter to be accomplished so he was going to send her horse riding. And I know it sounds all, he sounds like a terrible wanker when I talk, to, talk about him like that, but he had this incredibly modest demeanour, self-effacing and pleasant and gentle it didn't sound like wanking when it came out of his mouth. Um, but he was essentially building up a facade around this hollow um, shell which was smeared with shame, is, is my conclusion about him. Of course, you can't, you're not meant to diagnose people. Um, but every, every characteristic that he, he, he demonstrated, all of his behavioural patterns are very squarely um, personal, the, the, the characteristics of someone with a personality disorder and my understanding is that that is um, a very key part. Shame is a very key part of someone with a personality disorder. Thank you, Stephanie. So we talked um, quite a lot about um, how shame can shape people's behavior, interpersonal behavior. But look, in your book, you write about your PhD, what you've done about Australian literature and how central the concept of shame was uh, there. So it would be really interesting to hear how shame do you think shapes the, the literary landscape in Australia? Yeah, I, I, um, I just quickly, just before I, I, I get to that, though, just something that the discussion brought up, I haven't thought about in a long time, with this idea of what's going to happen when we start saying no more. Uh, I haven't thought of this for years, but um, many years ago, I don't know exactly when this was, but there was a television campaign, uh, Domestic Violence, Australia Says No, and accompanying that was they established these domestic violence hotlines. And for whatever reason, it's not the sort of thing that... Uh, anyway, my mother volunteered for that. And I would drive her down into the city uh, after she was finished work. And she would volunteer on the phones. And for the first month, when the campaign first rolled out over the TV screens and so on, all the calls, over, all the calls were from men calling up to say, how dare you? accuse me of domestic violence. They, these people were voluntarily calling in to say, how dare you, through the TV screen, accuse me of violence. And it would get to the extent that sometimes they would themselves, and sometimes including their children, would abuse their wives, their daughters, over the phone to the domestic violence volunteers because they felt so upset that a television advertisement had suggested that they might be abusive. And I just, I couldn't wrap my head. I remember at the time I couldn't, and I thought, you know, mom, you've got to stop doing this. This is, this is insanity. And, uh, but she was absolutely committed to it. And I just never could accept that that was possible, that for a month, that's what they got. 
so I think it's a genuine, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know if that's exactly relevant, but that's what that reminded me of. And uh, as far as the PhD, just quickly, uh, there was a, my PhD was pretty simple. Uh, there was a book that came out in the 90s called Dark Side of the Dream. I don't know if anyone's ever read it, but it was by two professors, Professor Bob Hodge and Vijay Mishra, and it was a survey of Australian literature, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, uh, uh, and it was pretty idiosyncratic. Uh, but basically, their, their claim was that looking at this, all this literature, um, uh, looking at all the classics and so on, uh, and looking at A.A. Uh, a. Phillips and Cultural Cringe and Russell Ward and the Australian legend, that the whole thing pretty much added up to a schizophrenic mess of uh, guilts and denials. Uh, and that was kind of a common way of looking at things, post-colonial and psycho, uh, psychoanalytic at the time. Um, and the only contribution I made was by saying, well, taking from es Elspeth Proben and people like that and Jennifer Biddle, another great Australian academic on shame, um, maybe, again, replace the guilt part of it, the guilt aspect of it with shame, precisely because of what you were talking about, Jess, with uh, in shame literature, one of the things that's common is to, to point out that Shame's more closely related to pride in some ways. Uh, the toxic element of it, the destructive, violent element of it is when you, ref instead of, it's not just when you feel shame, but it's when you decide you're not going to tolerate it and you're going to replace it. you don't it. feel shame. That's right. right? Like, yeah. It's when you're like, I'm not going to feel shame. Exactly. I'm going to feel pride. And that means that you, in a way, uh, uh, you've, you've, you're, you're, going to be a, you're going to react in a, in a volatile way and in a, in a way that denies any kind of self-reflection and, and that's all the PhD was. But I think it's a, you know, you go through Australian literature, the, the, you know, it fits. Uh, it looks, the picture fits together pretty well. So, yeah. Can I just quickly ask you, look, what writers in particular you zoomed in? in the oh, yeah, well, uh, I, I did this, this ridiculous thing. I just picked one guy. Uh, and actually, you may know Brendan Cowell. He's a, an actor and writer. I really shouldn't have been awarded a PhD for just looking at one guy. It was pretty stupid, but that's what I did. And, you know, these days you can pretty much get a PhD uh, for doing just about anything. So uh, that's what I did. <laughs> Thank you. Well, speaking of PhDs, we theorized about shame quite a lot, and now I want to get a bit more personal. I'll start with Stephanie, because Stephanie was lovely on email. <laughs> She's, when I, I checked with the panelists if there's something I shouldn't be going into, and Stephanie said, you can ask me anything you like, but if I don't like it, I'll gently deflect. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, was wanting, I was wanting sort of, uh, one of the things I picked in your book um, was um, a certain body shame that you've experienced when you met Joe. And um, do you, so would you mind talking about whether you feel like that, that sort of um, sense was instrumental in some way of you kind of getting involved with him? I, um, it's interesting that you picked that up from the book because I didn't think I played it quite so. You obviously found it there. I but got it, the radar. Oh, you, got, you have a radar. It. You had a radar, yeah. I didn't think I'd, I'd um, emphasise it that much. Um, but when I, I mean, I guess I've never felt, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying this to a room full of people. But I've, I guess I've never, and I'm, I know I'm not alone in this, many women do not feel comfortable in their own bodies or in their own personalities or uh, in the world. And I suppose to a degree, and I mean, I'm, I, it's not all-consuming or crippling necessarily, but I think it's affected, my sense of self-worth has not been as high as it probably should have been for a range of reasons. And um, when I met Jo, I was um, a woman in her late 40s 
And there you go, talking about my age as well. This is very uncomfortable. Um, and I'd been single for a few years and um, I was not desperate because I hadn't actually been on – I hadn't been – actively online dating for many years because my first expedition into it in my early 40s was pretty dispiriting. Um, but um, I decided to go back into this what were this this murky world and um, met him and but nevertheless I think I didn't have high self-confidence and when his behaviour started to, and I mean, body body shame's wrapped up with the whole self confidence thing. It's it's kind of hard to extract it from, um, from a whole sense of not not being low self esteem, I suppose. But um, when his behaviour started to get weird, and I mean, I was never abused. He was kind and gentle. He just didn't turn up. He'd leave me in the lurch, leave me standing at airports, not turn up, stand me up when I was trying to organising meals for him or organising for him to meet my family um, and then he'd vanish without trace and not talk to me for weeks. Um, there was an element of me that went, this is all I deserve. Um, and there's a very strong sense of shame in feeling that and I said that in the book and I, I can't, you know, I, there were many occasions when I thought, why the hell am I writing this book? Why am I putting this all down here? Um, but the response has been really, really extraordinary. And in fact, before I came here tonight, today, um, I met a woman who had read the book and who said, I thought you were talking about my partner. It was the, exactly the same story. And I've had hundreds of emails now from women saying, oh, my God. And they play from the same playback playbook, these guys. It's, it's like they've all been to the same course. Um, there is just such a consistency of behaviour. It's, it's remarkable. But... Yeah, so does that sort Thank of... Thank you for, for answering it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and do you feel like with having written this book now and sort of put on the table everything that happened, did it kind of liberate you a little bit in some ways? Or? Oh, well, I thought so until Jess and I were on a panel a couple of weeks ago where shame came up and someone asked about it and I burst into tears. Um, so I thought I had. I thought. I, listen, I think generally writing the book has been... Everyone asked me, was it cathartic? Um, I think it's been a more complex process. The catharsis has, has come over a much longer period of time because I wrote a story about this for Good Weekend magazine when I was on staff in 2017 and that was certainly took me some way towards feeling better about things. I think understanding what's happened is the most powerful thing and that's always what my book was about, understanding. It, I never wanted it just to be a personal story. It had to include elements of research so... I could see all of the factors that came into play to make this story happen as it did. Um, but, yeah, I, I, f I feel pretty good about myself now, generally speaking, except when I'm asked about shame and Jess is sitting next to me. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Stephanie, before I'm like your shame vector, I'm like just drawing it towards you. I like... even put a tissue under my frock here just <laughs> <in case>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, Look, still sort of being personal, and again, you can also gently or not gently deflect me, <laughs> but um, from what I gathered from your book, um, when you started getting ill, because you write about experience of um, having psychosis, uh, shame played a part in you actually not uh, seeking maybe medical help on a time. Is that fair enough to say or not exactly? Yeah, I think, it, I don't know if it was shame, but I was, it's just, I think it was, 
not seeking help was just not a uh, something that I well the environment I grew up in uh, seeking help for mental illness is was a shameful thing to do uh, it was you know something that yuppies did or or something like that or you know uh, middle class kind of thing or you know uh, more likely to make you sicker because the the people that you go to get help from are going to be lunatics too and uh, so I just I just didn't think it was it just wasn't on my radar, so to speak. And then when things started to get really bad, uh, I just, I, I just, I, the only thing I could think of to do was Google. I didn't even have a doctor. I didn't, I never had a doc, like a family doctor or something. So I just Googled medical center and uh, went to the nearest one. And it just so happened to be the shittiest medical center you could possibly imagine. If it's, I, I put it in, I put the, the Google reviews for that medical center in the book because you just won't believe them. They're just constant complaints. These people are incompetent. These people are, are aggressive. They're, they're terrible. There's one review on Google where the woman said, this, guy, this young man says he went in there and the doctor said, the first thing she said to him is, close the door, you stupid boy. Like, how's it, how's it place still running? It's just insane. Uh, I, I don't think I named Maybe it. Maybe we'll but, close it now after your book. Well, I hope so. I wish. Yeah, if my book I don't think is going to make much impact on anything. But... If it closes that medical centre, I'll consider it a, a win. And, uh, but, I, you know, I don't know. I, and, I, and I don't know whether, just to go back to, to Stephanie's, uh, something that you said is writing about it, uh, or, or maybe, I didn't think you, I don't, you said understanding it is, is important and uh, maybe writing about it was somehow necessary to try and understand it. But with total psychosis, I, I, I wrote about it, but I still don't know what the hell happened. I, I can't blame shame or guilt or, medical system or whatever things just went haywire and i don't know why the hell at all there was probably something wrong in the first place you know uh and uh, so i can't really i can't really explain to tell you the truth and was it difficult for you was there any shame involved when you decided to write about this experience people ask people say to me how can you aren't you embarrassed uh not really you know i've i'm a writer that's my job uh, it's my job to embarrass myself in a way so <laughs> it's just part of the course what you know Thank you. Gala, for you, has shame ever been um, a big presence in your personal life? Mm. Hmm. So, I'm a Capricorn. Uh, so, and we don't handle shame very well uh, and, 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 and tend to take a, a sort of like a mistake or something that we feel guilt about and really just dive into that. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I feel like, yes, it's, it definitely plays out, but I guess I see um, shame in, in my personal... Like, often I feel like I'm actually navigating other people's shame in my personal life, much less than my own, which is either because I refuse and just displace the, that action onto other people, uh, which is very convenient. Um, but, but I think, you know, a, a lot of... Um, when I look back at my sort of intimate relationships... I have really held a lot of partners' super deep shame in ways that I later learned to monetize as a sex worker. Like, I was doing that work anyway, uh, and, and now, you know, I offer humiliation and degradation as a service. You know, like, when you were talking about that, I was like, yeah, because, because there, I, I, I see that... So I'm a dominatrix, um, and so I work in, in BDSM, so I work with pain, I work with 
shame, I work with you know, dominance and submission and those kinds of things, which are deeply psychological spaces to play in. And I guess what I get to witness there that I, that I couldn't in my personal life because it wasn't so playful, it was higher stakes, is, is people doing something with their shame, uh, identifying it and working out how to play with it uh, and, and to bring it into view or into the light in a way that is still embodied um, but isn't for everyone to see um, and, and doesn't need to deeply impact the rest of their lives. So I, I feel like there, there's the, we can actually do a lot with this raw material of shame. And, you know, the, and Jess has talked lots throughout the festival about the, all the pathways that that sort of goes on in, in, in her research. Um, and I think that we can, there, there's so much delight in actually acknowledging it and, and rolling around in it and, and, and sort of taking pleasure from the ridiculousness that we experience it at all. This is such an interesting point. I, I'll be thinking about it after this panel. <laughs> Just what about you? You sort of spent now five years, five years wasn't it, writing this book and speaking with uh, mostly women about such deeply shameful experiences. For you personally in your life, has shame been ever important? Um, yeah, I just I echo what Gala says is that I think that I have held shame for other people. Part of, I guess, I probably am too young to really tell you if I how like how I've experienced shame because I probably haven't owned up to a lot of it in my life yet. Um, but I I would say that some of where I felt was my reserves around this stuff and to be able to really dive into it for as long as I have and for like, you know, no money and just, you know, basically going to the wall in order to do that was partly because I felt like, well, I don't have that really deep reserve of shame that, and I don't have to prosecute this argument through my own story as so many other survivors commonly have to com always dredge up their own experiences, you know, to then tell this story. And I just thought, well, I don't have to do that and I'm in a privileged position that way. So, so that's part of what sort of kept me going. I guess what I was actually just realising this last night is that I think that in my upbringing, you know, my mum my suffered quite a lot of neglect as a kid and there's, we've talked about whether there's issues of complex trauma there. Last, actually, um, a couple of years ago, just, just as I fell pregnant, we started having really open conversations about shame and about how shame played into her behaviour and her expectations of being betrayed um, and how that affected our relationship. And it was, you know, I actually never, ever talk openly about this, partly to protect my mum, but I think that there was a lot of things that I was managing as a kid. Um, I was very parentified and so I would often take responsibility for the arguments going on in the house and whatever and try to give my parents advice on how to fix it. Unfortunately, they never said, that's really nice of you to give advice but we don't need it, we're adults. Yeah, they didn't say that. Um, so, um, so I think that when I was a kid, I really wanted to – I looked for concealed truths and I only just – really realized that last night talking to my partner I would like I wasn't like a academically brilliant kid at all but I worked like nobody else on assignments but I'd work on like history assignments and find what they were trying to cover up in the syllabus or what they weren't really telling us and um and that then has carried into my professional life and but I think a lot of it comes from there was a there were concealed truths in our household that I could never get to the bottom of 
and it was actually safer to look at the concealed truths out in the wider world. And I think why I've gotten so obsessed, I finally sort of, I think I'm getting closer to understanding why I sacrifice so much in my life, personal relationships, salary, everything to dive into domestic abuse was that this was almost one of the greatest concealed truths of all. And, um, and it was a concealed truth that by its very concealment was hurting and isolating like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in this country. And I guess I took it upon myself to like probably in the first instance rescue all of them because um, <laughs> that's what I've been doing since I was, you know, eight years old. But, um, but also I think I was like this requires – a lot of work and maybe maybe you're one of the people who can help add to the work that's already been done but do it in a way that's like you've got the drive something's driving you and I think that's what's driving me thank you Jess now I just had a signal before that we're edging towards the end but I really want to kind of come back full circle to the suggestions of Knozgaard I mentioned before about shame on meter because we're at the writers festival we great to talk a little bit about the process of writing itself and you all although you write very differently you work in creative non-fiction genre which is a genre which uh, bound very much with um shame not always of course but often um so i want to ask you what do you think about this suggestion of knosgaard that um what we often feel uncomfortable to reveal or write about whether it's our material or other people's material do you think for you it is sort of you also you meter, barometer for what you actually need to go to and write? Gala, maybe you would like to go there first? Um, so while I think it can give us some indicators for spaces of exploration or, or be a, a sort of like a, 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 an arrow to where the work is, I'm... Uh, I'm skeptical of, I was having this discussion actually this morning with some friends at breakfast time and we were all expressing this skepticism around um, the, the virtue of self-confession um, and the use of the self as this point of departure um, for, for nonfiction writing. You know, we do a lot of self-exposition um, and, and we're not always doing work that is uh, useful to other people in that self-exposition. Uh, and I work a lot with a consent educator who has this sort of mantra, what are you doing and who is it for? Um, and that's the question that I feel like I would ask myself if I was at this point where I was making a decision about like, okay, I feel shame about this, should I write about it? Um, and and if, it, if it really is only for my own catharsis, I, I, maybe I can write it, but I don't know that I need to publish it. Look, I have get a sense you may have a little bit different take for the on this, but I don't know. Um, I, 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 there's a great uh, shame critic, uh, uh, Timothy Buse, uh, post-colonial uh, uh, critic, looking at the role of shame. Who and essentially his belief is that all writing is a, a form of shame. That all all literature is a form of shame, and his justification for that is he he takes this quote by Gilles Deleuze. In my opinion, is probably just a charlatan. But uh, he, uh, the quote from Deleuze is, "The shame of being a man. What better reason to write?" And, and Timothy Buse's his take on that is, you know, like, okay, forget about uh, the obvious problems with it. He says the thing is, uh, being lit being literate is probably a, a greater shame and a better reason to write. You know, what better reason than writing than the shame of being able to read? And his whole thing is that all forms of literature. 
the reason you know, we want to fill these books is because there's some dissatisfaction with our own lives that we're, we're trying to meet in our work, like the old story about the artists trying to make themselves whole, but you're never going to get there. And so then when you don't get there and the work you know, is a disappointment, there's a new shame. Now, not only am I a failure as a human being, but as an artist, and now I'm stuck in this cycle where it goes around and around and around. I've got to write another book. Yeah, God damn it. I'm glad you touched on this look because exactly it's, it's the sort of the shame of maybe writing about yourself, but there's also the artistic, the constant sort of setup of yourself for failure, especially when you take on such big topics as you did, Jess. I mean, <laughs> you took something really enormous. So for, is for you shame, uh, whether it's about writing yourself or others or the topic, a factor when you're sort of thinking about what, what you're writing about next? Um, well, I think about Carl. And I think he's a lot of his family don't talk to him anymore. Um, so don't know whether that's been effective in Carl's life. I mean, you sold a lot of books. Um, uh, is shame important in that writing? I guess to be honest, like that chapter in the book, and this is I was saying to Steph as I was coming up the stairs, it's like even trying to remember that chapter, it's like it disappears from view. view. Every time I try to recall things, now I remember a lot of these chapters almost off by heart now. That shame chapter, so much of it, it just, I can't remember. I can't recall it. And it was one of the most gutting chapters to write. Being in that space for so long was just like, because I, I would try to inhabit it so I could understand it, you know, and it was just awful. I wanted to get out of it real quick. And it just, and I wrote it with my husband, <laughs> even better. Um, and so by the end of when I was about to submit the manuscript, I wanted to take that chapter out. I thought we'd done it wrong um, or we'd gotten it wrong and it just wasn't, you're never going to get it right. <laughs> I was sort of like sh ashamed about my shame chapter. And, um, and, but funnily enough, it's the chapter that time and again comes up to people, people say that's the most important chapter in the book and especially for guys um, and for women as well. But for guys who feel like that has been a totally unacknowledged part of themselves, um, and that sense, like even in my younger brother, he now sees when he feels this sense of like a humiliated fury coming up in him, he can spot it and instead of just feeling at the whim of it, he can kind of grab hold of it and go like, not this time, buddy, you know, like am I going to like re redirect this feeling? And it's just been astonishing how effective just explaining and laying it all out Um because, you know, as my partner says, he's a psychotherapist, says the, the problem is not the feeling, it's how we respond to it. So shame itself is not the problem. Um, it's how we choose to respond or how our behaviour emerges in response to it. Um, so I think I am grateful to the book and the process for now understanding it. it still makes me squirm inside, but it will always underpin what I write in future. You can't unlearn that stuff. I love this, <laughs> the idea of underpinning, yeah. Um, Stephanie, what do you think about this idea of shame or meter? Um, I, um, as I wrote the book, as I said earlier, I, I wondered whether I should be doing it. The whole time I was writing, I was going, why the hell am I doing this? To the point that I actually started a, a document that said, why the hell am I doing this? <laughs> Seriously, I'm not joking. <laughs> I looked at it this morning to remind myself of some of the things that I had in there. Um, and I, I put in a lot of quotes in there from everyone, from Monica Lewinsky to um, Jeanette Winterson, who talks a lot about how 
why are you even writing something unless there's something incredibly powerful and raw in there? Um, her quote's better than the way I paraphrase it there. Um, Oprah Winfrey says, you've got to write, you've got to tell your stories. We've got to tell your stories. Um, and I think one of the best things, and I, I have to read it to you because my memory is appalling and my also, so, so too is my Spanish. Um, but the Spanish writer, I think it's Jorge Luis Borges, um, he said, a writer, and I believe generally all persons must think that whatever happens to him or her is a resource. All things have been given to us for a purpose and an artist must feel this more intensely. All that happens to us, including our humiliations, our misfortunes, our embarrassments, all is given to us as raw material, as clay, so that we may shape our art. Now, I don't proclaim to be an artist, but I... The thing, that, that message to me was, was in my why the hell am I doing this document? And I think, yeah, I was given a story to tell and, yes, it meant that I needed to put my shame on a page but I couldn't walk away from this incredibly powerful story that had landed in my lap and it was my story, not someone else's for a change. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's a really lovely sort of place to, to end this conversation with this idea that um, for artists, shame can be a really, for some artists, shame can be really priceless material. So thank you so much for coming and uh, come for the book signings. <laughs> thank you, Lee. If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world. <laughs>